Welcome to Keeping It Secure, the Hashicast show about security trends, cloud adoption challenges, and security innovation. Join your hosts, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil, as we tackle the complexities of cloud security and industry-wide challenges. Okay, so you know what? Keeping It Secure, this is a special episode, Adil, right? Do, do you know why this is a special episode? Adil's got his sunglasses on. Do you know why this is a special episode? No, no, Briss. Are you, t- you going to tell me? This is this is a milestone episode. This is the tenth episode that we've recorded. The tenth episode of keeping it secure. You it's, know that's, what? That's, that's I, a big I, deal. I lost track. I just just, just keep to keep on recording and keep on talking. Right? I lost track. Wow, this is a big <laughs> milestone. <laughs> yeah, no. So, uh, just want to say so. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being on this journey uh 10 episodes and counting uh obviously we've done more episodes as part of hashicast as well so adil and i are actually a bit bit older than 10 episodes but now this is this is fantastic and long made this continue so anyway how you doing bro i'm very well bruce um the weather's going good i'm really enjoying it at the moment but we you know been stuck at home right now but as soon as this recording is done i can't wait to get out and enjoy the sun Right, well, before you go and enjoy the sun, let's uh, enjoy some fantastic conversation because we have two very, very wonderful guests with us today. Uh, they are blessing us from the lands of Microsoft. Um, this is the first time we've actually had uh, Microsoft representation on this specific podcast. We've had them on HashiCast before, um, but it's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you all Eitan and Sarah from Microsoft Welcome, folks. Uh, let's start with uh, Eitan. How are you doing? Thanks for coming yeah. on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you guys for hosting us. Thank you. Thank you. And Sarah, let's hear your lovely voice. Hey, thanks for having us this morning. Awesome. 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 So let's just build a bit of background here just before we get into the weeds of, of what's going to be a glorious conversation. Um, you both work for Microsoft. Um, let's put this one to Sarah uh, to begin with. Uh, w- what department do you work in at Microsoft and what, what are you primarily concerned with in your day-to-day? Yeah, great question. Don't get too attached to the acronyms because they infamously will change probably by the time we publish this. But uh, all jokes aside, we're in the Identity and Network Access Division, um, specifically our identity security team. So we're focused on identity security threats, of which there are numerous. So Aton and I work on a product called Azure AD Identity Protection, really focused on how do we protect both user and workload identities from being compromised and helping organizations respond when they sometimes just are inevitably compromised. That's brilliant. Awesome to hear. And as a, a big user of Azure, especially Azure AD for some of the integrations of HashiCorp tools, it's fantastic to hear um, some of the things that you're doing around uh, Azure AD just to make it a bit more robust. Um, so uh, how long have you actually been with Microsoft and in this this role? Yeah, I've been in this role for almost four years now, which is hard to believe. We've definitely grown wow. and evolved a lot since then. Yeah, it's been a wild journey. Fantastic, fantastic. And Ethan, uh, how long have you been in your role at Microsoft? Yeah, so I joined Sarah's team in about two years ago, two and, coming up on two and a half years ago. Before that, I was part of uh, the Identity Team's uh, Customer Success Organization. And I was working a lot with partners around the world, uh, educating, you know, evangelizing, advocating about cloud identity and Azure AD in general. 
Uh, before I did that, I was working as a consultant. And before that, I was actually a lawyer. <laughs> I, uh, I had a legal career, but uh, it turned out that uh, the legal drama I found in real life wasn't uh, uh, on par with the legal drama that I was finding uh, in, uh, you know, for, uh, I'd seen uh, on television. And so I, I decided to, uh, to take a different uh, direction career-wise. And I haven't looked back. It's been fantastic. And, uh, and now you know, I'm part of, a, part of a great team. I get to work with Sarah and other people uh, who are awesome all the time. So, yeah, it's great. I'm sure we'll see uh, lots of dramas in the identity scene as well soon. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no shortage of action and excitement for sure. This is a different flavor of suits, I think. So, yes, uh, <laughs> fantastic. Okay, let's let's kick off. So, uh, you both work in in the Azure AD space, right? So, uh, in terms of Azure AD, that's yeah, I see that as when, when we talk about zero trust, I, I always say that, that there are some things that you need to do in order for zero trust to be uh, eased, I think, right? is probably the, the best way of putting it, right? Um, and I think you want to centralize a few things, right? Yeah. And identity is one of the things that you want to centralize. I think if you have your identity sprawled across different uh, providers and you don't have a single source of truth, it, you create an overhead uh, for yourself, right? Which is one of the reasons why I'm a really big advocate for Azure AD and, uh, you know, even having your application identities in there. So kind of with that context, if, if someone is treating Azure AD as their uh, single source of truth for identity, what would you say the, the threats are with that? What are the things that they need to look out for? Let's start with uh, Eitan. Yeah, so I think we see that there are some of the same kinds of, of threats that we see both with uh, humans and with workload identities. I think well, with workload identities, so with, with humans, you know, it's, it's either the, the employees that we're talking about or their business guests, or even uh, in the area of consumer identity and access management, we see like citizens and, and, and end consumers who are, who are needing to authenticate to a system. Um, and the same, a lot of the same issues around credential theft uh, can be prevalent between both. That's sort of the areas that we see similarities where the credential could be discovered in some way uh, and then it's it's misused. Of course, there's some really specific differences. So, for example, like with workload identities, when we're talking about the applications, uh, daemons and daemon services, scripts, all those kinds of things, uh, they don't, you know, they don't, uh, we don't see as much like, you know, password spray sort of attacks. We don't see as much like random guessing. What we've seen more is the fact that there are credentials in code uh, in public repositories and those sort of replay attacks, you know, will happen. It's not, it's not a replay attack we think about with, with users. We think about it in a different, it's in a different way. It's, it reminds me of in, uh, in the Ready Player One movie where the, the bad guy has his, uh, his, his password on a post-it note, you know, next to his VR machine. And it's just right sitting right there, you know, but it's, it's, it's his login. I think that's, that's kind of the same thing we're seeing a lot with, with code, unfortunately, is that uh, because of poor secrets management, because of um, environments that, frankly, are not the, the infrastructure of the identity is not secured, um, because there's like, you know, either they're allowing custom passwords for, for custom app secrets, or because they're not enforcing uh, the use of certificates. You, you see these sort of issues with uh, with with that particular type of identity. So. You've mentioned about the securing the infrastructure of workload identity. Um, 
Now, if we take this example again, where Azure AD being this identity provider for workload identity or application security, um, the question that arises at that point is, is there a need to then secure further at the infrastructure aspect of, uh, in respect to workload identity, for example, would you uh, filter or add in a source IP address belonging to, say, Azure AD uh, as part of that workload identity provider aspect? Or is it enough to understand to say that actually we trust the identity of this application and we don't, we no longer need to further add, um, say, networking as a form of identity to further kind of isolate it into, a, say, an application-specific concern? Um, so that's really kind of the question we're asking here is that do we feel that the, the workload identity and the attestation of it is now enough to then start influencing decisions around the isolation at different layers of the application stack? Yeah, so there's a few aspects to that. There's, it depends on the service. So the advice that we generally give people, and we're going to talk about some of the defenses and, and, and things a little bit later on. The, the, you bring up a good point. If we, let's just keep it focused to threats for a second. The issue of un, unauthorized IP addresses, you know, coming in with workload identities is absolutely a concern. We and we want to reduce the surface area for that. But this is also uh, an issue for users, right? And we don't. We want to know. You know we want to basically like regulate our network traffic. And sometimes you can predict your network traffic if you own the app, right? Um, and that's a lot easier when it's at your data center. When you start to get into where the service is, is based in Azure or in AWS or GCP or wherever, like those become a lot less predictable. And so one of the things that we're thinking about is, you know, how do we how do we get around that? How do we make it more predictable? Um, but um, but I wanted to pass it over to Sarah for a second to just kind of ground some of the space of where we're at in terms of user-based identity attacks as well. Sarah, do you want to speak uh, briefly to, to some of the user aspects just to give us a full yeah, picture? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've been tracking and trying to respond to user-based identity threats for many years now, right? Like we've gotten pretty good at it. Um, unfortunately, we still have a lot of users that just aren't doing the basic things we need them to do to prevent them from being compromised, right? Like we know that the major types of identity-based threats against users leverage some pretty, frankly, basic techniques, right? Like they're leveraging the fact that it's a weak, easily guessable credential. Or they're leveraging the fact that even if the user thinks they've done the right thing and I've made my password, you know, complex, quote unquote, I'm reusing it against 25 different sites. And so all it takes is one of them to be compromised. And suddenly all my other accounts are also going to be compromised because I reuse that same credential. Um, so most of the types of compromise we see can be stopped by MFA, right? Something like 99% of identity-based attacks can be stopped by MFA. A pretty depressing number of users, and not just users, of admins aren't using MFA, right? Like it's it's the easiest thing we can do to protect those accounts. Um, what is notable is we have a lot of folks that are really concerned about MFA-based compromise. And while it can happen... It is far less likely than some of these more basic attacks that we see every single day, right? Um, so getting MFA turned on is going to really reduce the surface area of attacks for the vast majority of organizations. 
Sarah, you touched on something I, I really wanted to get into uh, regarding MFA. Um, so just to kind of uh, give a backstory, um, w- one of my friends is a Twitch streamer. They, they play games, they stream it, uh, they earn their income from that. Uh, and unfortunately for them, uh, their Twitch account was hacked and their funds or their income was was pretty much stolen. Um, what was interesting about that is uh, they had MFA uh, enabled. Um, so, you know, when I got into the weeds of it and kind of asked them, okay, so well, what type of MFA was it? It was um, MFA where it sends a text message to to your, your mobile number, right? Um, I've had different applications where uh, I've had MFA enabled and I get a notification to say, hey, um, instead of using your telephone number, can you use an authenticator app or can you use a different method uh, because it's more secure? Um, and, you know, I go ahead and I, I kind of switch it over without really questioning it. So uh, I guess my question to you is, uh, it sounds like there's levels to this when we talk about MFA, right? So are there, are there levels to this, firstly? And secondly, what are those levels? And thirdly, what's the differentiator between these levels? Like what makes one more secure than the other, if indeed that is the case? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And again, just want to stress, please please turn on MFA, right? Like you don't even have to worry about these types of attacks if you have not yet turned on MFA. So getting it on is the baseline. But you're right. You know, there, there definitely can be instances where accounts that are protected with MFA are still compromised. And in the case of your friend, it can have a real financial impact. So it's not like it's no big deal. Um, when I think about levels of MFA in terms of what's the best, it generally comes down to like their inherent security, but also a level of fishability, right? So if you think kind of at the bottom of, uh, you know, the kind of the stuff you probably don't want to turn on better than nothing, but only kind of is email-based MFA and then, you know, SMS and phone call, right? Email-based is just atrocious. Like we should not even be allowing this because if it's sent to the email and they've already compromised your password, they probably have access to your email, right? So it's like only barely a second factor um, if it's going to an email that they've probably also compromised. SMS and phone call are interesting, right? Like that's what most of us have used for MFA for quite some time. It's easy. I think there've been a lot of great innovations. Um, Like Apple makes it super easy to grab your SMS code and easily put it in whatever form you're sending into, which is really helpful. But there are some insecurities to that, right? Like things like SIM swapping, although frankly pretty rare, is a risk. And they're also pretty fishable, right? So it's much more likely that you would be fished and be tricked into putting your SMS code into what you think is a legitimate Gmail or Outlook sign-in page. And then now they've gotten, you know, a strong off claim for your account because they got both your password and your MFA, right? So, you know, SMS, phone call, even most of the authenticator apps are still pretty fishable. Again, way better than nothing, but you do have to be aware of the risks, both from phishing as well as from SIM swapping. The best is using FIDO, right? Like I don't have it next to me right now, but I love my FIDO key. It's always on me. It makes it super easy once you get used to it. um, And that is not going to be fishable. So that is definitely the best of the best. But we also know there are certain scenarios where they're just not practical for various users right now. Um, There have been some cool, exciting new announcements around pass keys, which I think is going to be amazing to help um, make this more secure to sign in and just get rid of passwords altogether. Um, But today we know that many users do use SMS and phone call, and they just do need to be aware of the risks around being phished. I think one of the things you raised, Sarah, 
it really touches to the admin compromise piece. So, because I mentioned how, like, with workload identities, security, we're concerned about you know replay of a of a explicit credential that's been uh, publicly on a on a public repository, right? Whatever source source control. But one of, even more prevalent, I think, than that is just admin compromise through phishing or password spray. They didn't have MFA turned on, and then the then the adversary uses their admin role to compromise a workload identity. So then they're gonna they're gonna take over the app. They're gonna find a app that has a lot of privilege or permissions. They're gonna add a credential to it, so it's not gonna interrupt the, fl- the existing flow of the app. They'll add a credential to it and then use that uh, to move laterally. And so, so like with equal, if not equal or greater importance, I should say like equal importance of securing the workload identity credentials is securing the admins who can touch workload identities. So in terms of uh, kind of, it sounds like secrets management is is still a big weakness in a lot of places. Um, you know, I, I work at HashiCorp. We we um, we build and maintain um, HashiCorp Vault. Uh, I've, before I joined HashiCorp, been using Vault for a very long time. And uh, I've actually built a career um, just implementing Vault and helping people with their consumption patterns uh, going from one organization to the other doing that. Um, so it's, it's quite easy for someone like me to think that, okay, secrets management for the most part is a solved problem. Um, and maybe it is, uh, but in terms of, uh, people's understanding of why you need secrets management and their, uh, willingness to dip their feet in the water, you know, get skin in the game, um, I guess the question is, is that still an issue? Because how I even got into this is I'll never forget. I I was a consultant and I was hired to uh, basically terraform someone's infrastructure. And when I got there, I said, okay, show me what you've got so far. And I could see like database passwords and API keys and all that kind of stuff, which Terraform was reliant on, all in the source code, all in their GitHub. so I saw all of that and I was like, yeah, look, I can't work like this. We've, we've, got, to, we've got to sort this out. Uh, they were like, what do you mean? I said, well, you, you can't have your, your secrets in your source code. Like, they were like, yeah, but it's um, private GitHub. So um, I was like, yeah, but that, that assumes that the threat is just from outside. There's also the threat internally of, of you know, the disgruntled employee. But I said, even a bigger threat than the disgruntled employee is um, just the mistake that's made, the accident, right? Um, so... How do you protect from that? How do you uh, stop someone accidentally pushing that to somewhere it's not supposed to be? So yeah, in the end, we tore up the contract we had and drew up a new one, which was for me to implement HashiCorp Vault, right? But it kind of led me to believe that, uh, and this was a while ago, so I I kind of felt like the industry may have moved a bit forward from this, but do you think that uh, the understanding of the reasons why you need a good secrets management solution and people's willingness to get skin in the game. Do you think that is still an issue today? I, I think it's an issue, not in terms of technical capabilities of the various vendors and not in terms of most customers recognizing the issue. I think the the, the, the challenge is in budgeting. It is a combination of things. The current state of most enterprise environments that are sort of a, a mix of a lot of things. I, I don't think that most organizations have implemented governance in this area, so they don't have a they don't have they haven't have their arms wrapped around this problem in the way that they might have their arms wrapped around user security, user governance, and lifecycle, right? 
So how do we bring people into the organization? How do we offboard people in the organization? How do we ensure that devices are joined to the network and subject to maybe a conditional access policy saying, you know, you can only join if you're coming from an authorized device, right? All those sorts of very powerful security controls in place. I, I haven't seen, this is the customers who I'm talking to, there's a desire to have full app, I'll just give you an example, full app inventory to understand all the apps and what are all the permissions that we have and do are these apps, who's the owner of all these apps, right? Those are not things that have yet fully been realized in customers' uh, organizations, although they realize that it's important. With the, the thing you mentioned in terms of, you know, good secrets management, there's, there's yes, HashiCorp and, and other, organ, other companies, you know, have good secrets management. We have a secrets management solution at Microsoft, right? Like, those are all important things. One thing that we've done, I think, and I think that HashiCorp is, has th thought along the similar lines is, how do we just get take that issue off the table? So we have something called Managed Identities for Azure Resources, right? Where Azure is just going to rotate the X509 certificate for you and customers don't have to worry about it. Uh, and so you're basically, you know, abstracting that whole challenge away from customers. I think that's really where we want to get to, not just with secrets management. We want to get that way with threat detection as well, right? And we're going to talk, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But the more and more, you know, one of the things... Cornerstones with zero trust is about do, taking the work off the customer, taking making things easier for organizations in terms of management. Absolutely, and um, you know, <laughs> managed identities is something. If if you if you follow my content, you'll see I, I speak about managed identities a lot. In fact, it's um, kind of a shock to me that more people don't know about it and or utilize it. The amount of people I speak to. Um, that come to me with with secret zero introduction issues that are on Azure, and I say managed identities, and like, what is that? I'm like, wow, like th this will literally blow your mind when you see how you can just remove pa passwords from your workloads, right? Um, but that's that's one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about, right? Is uh, in terms of workload identities, uh, in trying to think about some of the problems that our industry faces, I've come to realize that assigning identity to workloads is one of the hardest things to do, right? Um, very few platforms do it well for anything outside of its control, right? So managed identity essentially is assigning identity to workloads that are in Azure, right? Um, the biggest challenge for me is um, if I have some of my infrastructure in Azure and some of it on-prem and some of it uh, in a different cloud, how do I assign identity? And if I have workloads that need to speak to one another or connect to different things across different clouds, how do we extend the identity? Um, that, in my opinion, is not a solved problem. Um, you know, I, I've, I spoke with uh, Jonathan Lyon from, from Microsoft a while ago, and he did mention that it's now possible to... Um, to use Azure AD identity in different uh, clouds. Um, I hope I'm not misquoting him there. Uh, I haven't had the chance to actually experiment with that. But in terms of that actual uh, assigning identity to workloads and, and uh, how can we do that in a very transparent manner that will kind of span multi-cloud and multi-platform, uh, what's kind of Microsoft's view on that? 
So I think there's a few aspects to it. The first one is absolutely you can assign, we do it every time you register an application in Azure AD, whether it's your own application or a multi-tenant application, like a SaaS app, you're, you're assigning identity to a workload. I mean, that's, that's essentially what that means. So you, the, the representation of that in your own environment, your own tenant is going to be a service principle. And the service principle is a security principle, which can acquire a token to get access to some resource. And this is where we can start. Once we have that service principle, this is where we can start to wrap some security controls around it. We can start to do defense in depth. So we have things like, I mentioned conditional access. For those who aren't aware, conditional access is a policy engine that allows you to basically create if then statements. If, uh, if the account is coming in from a named location, a location that I trust, then allow access, right? If a user is coming in who's high risk, Sarah can give you all the details on those scenarios, a user is coming in that's high risk in flagged by identity protection, then block access or force, force them to do a password uh, reset, right? This is how you create rules. And we talked a little bit earlier about IP addresses and IP ranges and how do we make sure that things in the network are, are safe. This is where you use conditional access and you would create this sort of uh, network-based or location-based policy. But it goes beyond that. It goes uh, beyond, of course, go ahead. Uh, no, it's fine. I thought you were finished. I was going to ask Sarah to expand on some of the user sides of that. Let's do that. No, it's let's, fine. Let's, Continue. let's kick it over to the, to the user side for a second. I want, yeah. it's, it's good to have these parallels. So let me stop now yeah. and have you kick it over to Sarah. Yeah, I mean, on the user side, right, I think the most important thing is to make sure that we're using adaptive auth right? Um, fortunately, you know, as Azure AD and there's other providers that can do this as well, we can detect in line whether or not things are anomalous, which I think is super important. And one of the unique things of an identity provider is we just have tons of data, right? Like, you know, we have many years and tons of data to understand what is normal for a user, right? In ways where kind of disconnected solutions can't really do that because you don't have all the data, right? You like just truly can't understand what is typical for Aton when he logs in. Um, and by using, you know, conditional access or whatever sort of adaptive authentication engine you have, you can use that to detect anomalies. This works very, very well for those types of compromise that we were discussing earlier, right? So things like password spray, breach replay, generally it looks really fishy, right? We can detect that the user is high risk, like most likely compromised in real time in many cases. What's interesting is some of the more advanced threats that, again, for most organizations, it'll represent a very small percentage of their attacks. Things like token replay are much harder to catch, right? So a lot of our innovation in the last probably two years has been how do we push that edge a little bit farther and still be able to detect these more novel and, again, relatively uncommon but still happen attacks against the users. Um, and what's cool is, you know, Aton and I, you know, we're on this team that's detecting both workload and user compromise, and there is a lot of overlap. So we're able to, you know, work with our data science team to kind of learn from years of detecting user compromise um, some of the techniques that work really well uh, across both, right? Like de detecting a leaked credential um, that is just out there, it's leaked, is something we can do for both users and workloads. Uh, what I find interesting is there's a lot that's different, kind of as Anton was mentioning, like they, they really are different types of identities and in many ways do have to be treated differently when we're both detecting the compromise and also figuring out how to respond to the compromise. I actually think that's, that's one of the issues that I see a lot in our industry is when we talk about some of the, the uh, challenges that we have with removing passwords from workloads and assigning identity to workloads, uh, 
a lot of the solutionizing that I hear from people is taking the approach as if it's a human principle rather than a, a machine or application principle. Um, and I think it's fundamentally flawed to, to look at it like that. I think when you think about us as humans, uh, we we need to know a unique piece of information, right? So that would be a password, right? And then we have uh, systems to protect us from that. So we have things like uh, multi-factor authentication. But then if we forget our, our password, then we have multi-factor systems in order to allow us to safely reset that. Uh, and there's a level of attestation built into that process, right? Um, so for us as humans, us as users, uh, especially when you have protocols like OIDC, it feels very much like a solved problem, right? Um, but to try and apply that same approach to applications, right? It, it it just doesn't work because essentially that piece of unique information that I know as a, as a, as a human principle, our application would need to know that piece of unique uh, uh, data and what does that mean? Does that mean hard coding something in your application? And that's exactly what we're trying to get away from, right? Uh, which is one of the reasons why I do like managed identity, because essentially that unique piece of information is baked into the infrastructure and is only accessible from that piece of infrastructure. Uh, another piece of infrastructure in Azure can't reach this thing and get to that. Uh, it can only be, uh, uh, you know, uh, called using the, the, the local API from within that machine. Uh, I'm going to kick it to Eitan uh, because I know he has something to add. Yeah, I think you bring up a great question. You said, you know, there are distinct differences and there's certain limitations we have with regard to workload identity remediation, for example. This is where Microsoft and HashiCorp have to push the envelope. This is where we need to say, no, maybe it's not possible today in June 2022, but we are going to make it possible. We're going to achieve the level of automation and sophistication and orchestration for our customers that's going to make this, that's going to shrink not only the attack surface, but that's going to shrink the amount of effort when something does go wrong. This is what, this is our mission. This is our charter as cloud security providers. Sorry, that, Absolutely. that sounds too that's, lofty. That's I hope that doesn't sound too lofty, but no, that's no, the no. mission. No. <laughs> No, no, honestly, it is because that a deal will tell you when we started this podcast, we started with the mission of we think we understand the challenges of the security industry, right? But before we start solutionizing, let's first make sure that we have a shared understanding, right? Because, you know, Adil and I see things through the lens that we see things. Uh, we're quite similar in mindset. So, um, you know, when we talk, it can be a bit of an echo chamber, right? So if we were to start solutionizing with that mindset there, there will be others who have different experiences, different challenges, you know, um, and we're not really taking that into account. The point of this podcast here is for us to, as an industry, start discussing these things, try and come up with a shared understanding of what the problems are and try and think about what good solutions look like across the industry rather than just at HashiCorp or, or just at Microsoft or any of the other clouds, right? Uh, for us, this is actually a vendor neutral uh, podcast for that very reason. We know other vendors do listen to this. They, they have reached out and given us comments. And, and these are the things that, that, that make it worth our while because at the end of the day, if they're thinking about these conversations when they're designing their solutions, then it's having the desired impact. You know, I, I'm not trying to influence what a solution looks like. In fact, I don't know what a solution looks like. I'm just trying to figure out what the right questions to ask are. And then we as a community can can discuss that and try and come up with um, 
the solutions uh, that work best for the industry on a wider scale. Um, but just, I want to plug into something that Adil uh, has mentioned earlier on, right? So let's let's paint a picture here. So uh, we're, we've got our managed identities in Azure, uh, and that's how we're we're getting around our SQL Zero introduction challenge. Uh, our whole identity strategy is something that the business is very comfortable with. We have good password policies. We have multi-factor authentication. Uh, we're fairly uh, confident in uh, our ability to detect and react to phishing schemes and and different attacks of that kind of nature. And a lot of these things here, we're talking either at the, the human level or we're talking at layer seven, right? So if that's the state that we're in and we're saying we, we trust the controls that we have at layer seven, right? Is there really a need to introduce another layer of protection at layer four, right? Because what happens is this, right? I have something that needs to connect to something else. And the fact that I have to put it into in a private network means that I now have the challenge of finding a tunnel, if you like, between this this piece of infrastructure to another piece of infrastructure that's somewhere else, right? Um, and to do that, I, I open up certain things or I put in certain pieces, which is extra attack surface. Uh, and I have to make sure that I protect that uh, to uh, mitigate the risks. So if we're comfortable at layer seven, Right, we're saying okay, like nothing's perfect, you know, but we're quite confident in what we have. Is there a need to introduce what could be an extra layer of complexity at layer four? I'm going to kick this one to Sarah to begin with because um, one of the things that I know is uh, a challenge is things like good um, passwords. Right, if you don't have a good password policy, then sometimes the risk can be well if someone can just brute force your password and you don't have MFA, then you can get in. But in terms of uh, that, if, if you've solved that part, do we need layer four protection? Do we need to put things in a private network? That's a great question. I'm also very curious to hear Eitan's take on the workload side. Um, I think to what you said, you know, assuming organizations have good password policies, I would also say that that is uh, not an assumption. Most organizations, when I talk to them, still have password policies that lead to entirely predictable passwords, right? Like it's also very easy to figure out these passwords. All you need is one person's cracked password. You realize it has 2019 at the end or Q4 and you can kind of figure out what the rotation policy is, right? So not an assumption. I wish we were there today. Um, but, you know, let's imagine this mythical world where we have organizations with perfect password policies. Do we need kind of these more network specific um, you know, things. I think it's interesting when we think in terms of zero trust, right? Like if we're thinking zero trust, then we should be verifying everything explicitly. You know, one thing I, I talk to a lot of um, customers who use Azure AD about is can they just like explicitly trust a bunch of network locations, right? Like, oh, well, it's it's Zscaler. I'm not picking on Zscaler, but, you know, it's a good example. There's Zscaler IPs. We use Zscaler. We're just going to trust all of them. Like, cool. Who else uses Zscaler, right? You know, like you're, you're, you're not the most special snowflake. They're used by tons of people. They can be used by the bad guys. So can you really trust that? Um, and so I think when we, you know, specifically on the network side, it's a really fine balance between are we trying to maximize for usability or are we trying to maximize for security, right? If you're trying to maximize for security, you're not going to trust them, right? You're, you're going to want to have on the network side the same as you would 
for these other components and have to verify explicitly, right? There could be things like adaptive engines that learn what is familiar, but you aren't going to just explicitly trust a bunch of network locations. If you're trying to maximize for usability, you might make a different decision, right? Like if you're using something like Zscaler or you know that certain IP ranges generally are good, maybe you say they're okay, right? Because you don't want to interrupt your users too much. That to me is it's risky, right? Like there's inherent risk in doing that. But we're always trying to find that balance between like how usable do we want this to be? How many times a day are you wanting your user to be MFA'd or blocked? Um, versus what's your security posture, right? And what I've seen increasingly recently is there's different policies across an organization for different types of identities. So I think many organizations are doing a better job determining what are their crown jewels and protecting the heck out of them, right? Like they'll be really onerous with their policies. And then for Joe and Mary who only have access to like their email and their email has no high business impact stuff, they might be a little bit more lax, right? And again, there's pros and cons to that approach, um, especially when you think of about things like lateral movement, but that's kind of what I'm increasingly seeing. Um, Eitan, how do you think about this from the workload identity side? That's kind of how I think about it from the user identity. But you know, as we discussed, yeah. workload identities are unique. I think that the principles are actually the same. So, so you mentioned this concept of you know, you know, looking at network uh, controls and saying you know, if if we're going to allow this thing in and then it just like runs amok, like we just you know this old like walled garden or wall, uh, fortress concept, walled fortress, where once you get into the initial network, now you can just do whatever you want, right? That's, that's, that's the opposite of zero trust, right? The idea is at every stage of uh, the process, whatever process is being executed, there is a check being done. And that goes from everything, like Sarah said, looking at, at potential compromise uh, at the time of sign-in, looking at things happening during the session, right? I mean, you know, uh, especially for users who, you know, they have really have more traditional sessions, right? Where they're, they're, they're doing those things. And so looking at the entire session, looking at data classification of the resource, like Sarah said, the crown jewels, what is the actual resource? Because that's what we really care about. At the end of the day, like an adversary or a, uh, as you mentioned, Rob, a, um, a um, inadvertent disclosure by an employee, right? An accidental uh, disclosure by an employee, we're, we're, we're protecting the resource. We're protecting the data. All of the things that we're talking about, whether it's the secrets or the identity systems, or whatever, it's all about eventually protecting the data. So having the right data classification and knowing um, knowing about that. Quick sidebar on data classification, because I just read a fantastic uh, article about um, uh, uh, the, I believe it was in the New Yorker magazine, talking about a case where uh, U.S. agencies were trying to coordinate on a particular investigation, and they they weren't sharing. There was so much classification of data. There's been there's been a swell of data secrecy, like things being labeled as secret or top secret in the U.S. government over the years, because things are so secret. It's hard. It becomes hard for agencies to share information because this one doesn't have the right um, security clearance to do these things. And so similarly, like the data, I, I think customers are probably have the opposite problem. Probably customers don't don't have anything labeled as co confidential, right? But but you that having the right data classification schema, I think, is something that you know an identity team we don't play with a lot. I don't know how much you you you, you focus on that in HashiCorp in terms of you know data classification, but it's such an essential thing because it, it it you working backwards from the resource, you then decide, all right, well if this is you know crown jewel, then we need to do this and we need to do that, right? You you. 
based off of the data classification, you have certain decisions you make with your secrets management, you know, what kind of credential strength do I want to have? Or in your identity system, what kind of privileges do I want to manage for this type of thing? The other thing that we have to be thinking about, because a lot of the times when we think about zero trust, we think about um, like a very typical, like identity is signing in to an identity system to get access to a resource. Like, like the thing that we always say is like, all right, uh, you're signing in to, uh, to M Microsoft 365 to get access to a SharePoint site. Like very common, you know, thing that a lot of us need to do in the corporate world. But there's another thing that we have to be aware of, and that's the aspect of state changes. Basically, inf identity infrastructure compromise. Adversary is after admin privileges. They are now manipulating. So if we look at MITRE, they're, look, they're doing, talking about account manipulation. First, account discovery, account manipulation, basically establishing persistence in the environment through something changed in infrastructure. And those are the sorts of anomalies that in identity protection we're looking at, really in several parts of Microsoft we're looking at, because we want to be able to detect those aberrations and tie them back to potential compromise. So it's not only about sign-in patterns. It's not only about uh, secret use, like what uh, credential strength and all these sorts of things. It's also about what's happening in the infrastructure itself that starts to give us indicators of compromise. We've seen this happen in the wild. Sarah and I have been involved in several high-profile incidents over the years. It's not um, it's not theoretical. It's it's a real threat. We need to be really uh, vigilant about those sorts of things. So just to make sure um, I understand this correctly, right? Because this this is the kind of thing a deal and I have spoken about on a podcast on numerous occasions, right? I guess my question was going to be, which uh, I, I just want to clarify the answer here, was are we saying that we don't trust our controls at layer seven? Uh, and what I'm kind of getting from from what you've just said there is kind of, yeah, we don't fully trust it because there are other things that could happen, right? And actually, this is the first time we've talked about the actual identity system itself um, being compromised and, and, and what that actually could look like. But it brings me to kind of things like um, Azure Key Vault, for example. Now, I stand to be corrected here, but... I seem to remember that the default action for Azure Key Vault is it's available on the public internet. I think you have to configure it to be private and then assign it a, I, I can't remember what they call it now. Is it a, uh, I can't remember what they call these network identities now um, in Azure, but you had to assign it that and basically it basically extends it as part of a private network, right? The fact that it starts off as a, a public facing by default, I, I thought that was quite telling, right? Um, because I, I do agree with you that in terms of uh, data classification, you have to figure out what the business value is of different components of your system and maybe the data that you're holding. And those are the things that you, you really want to protect the most, right? Uh, and essentially, when we talk about protecting our platforms, it's, it's probably the data that we're talking about rather than the different pieces around the data. We protect the different pieces around the data because that's probably going to be the route to get to the data itself, which is the crown jewel. But essentially... Are we saying that we can't trust our controls at layer seven, no matter how well thought out they are? I don't think it's about you know trusting or not trusting 100%. Because you say you know, that is part of the problem with the term zero trust is it's basically saying trust nothing. And I remember one of our uh, leaders in our organization, when this term was starting to proliferate, was saying, I don't know if I like this term because it it makes it sound like 
no one can trust anything. No one can trust Microsoft. No one can trust, like, aren't we sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt by saying zero trust? I think what we're, what we're trying to say is, yes, there are aspects of layer seven that are trustworthy. What we're saying is you have to, you have to explicitly verify access. So in the context of identity and access management, you want to explicitly verify. And we also assume breach. So we assume that bad things will happen. We, we take a skeptical eye, especially in our security unit that, we're, that Sarah and I are in. We take a skeptical eye towards everything, healthy skepticism towards everything um, for in the interest of security assurance. Yeah, I want to add to that a little bit. Um, I, I think what Eitan just said is super spot on, right? Like our team has definitely been known to receive an email. Like I, I've gotten this from my coworkers. Like, hey, can you read this doc and give me your feedback, right? And I'll like send them a message on another platform. Like, hey, was that worth you? <laughs> like, why do you send me this random doc, right? Like, were you compromised? So I, I do think um, a healthy level of skepticism, especially given our line of work, makes a ton of sense. I do want to double click on what you just said around like, hey, you know, there's this setting and by default, I need to fact check this. You know, you probably know more than I. It's set, uh, you know, to be public. I think one thing as an industry that we need to rethink are how we think about defaults in our products, right? Because I think a lot of our products, I don't think this is like a Microsoft or HashiCorp specific thing. We give customers a lot of configurability, right? Which is what they want. They want to have these nice, bespoke, and you know, implementations of our products. But what ends up happening for most customers is they look at whatever the default is, they say, great, and they continue on with their life, right? So when the default is, you don't have to have MFA, you can be using your user accounts willy-nilly instead of service principles, right? They're going to do that. So I think we actually need to rethink how we build our products so that by default, they're going to be secure, right? Like we're going to make it super hard for an organization to mess this up. So if they're just looking at the default policies, they really shouldn't have to do much of anything because by default, we're going to put them in the protected state. I think this is just a massive kind of like mindset shift, right? Like PMs like Aiton and I should not be tagged on or accountable or rewarded on how many people turn on a policy that will protect them when risk is detected. Just turn the thing on, right? Like that shouldn't even be a question about getting customers to use it. So I, I think that's, you know, kind of in the background of our conversations, thinking about how we get customers to turn things on. As an industry, we have to get to a place. So that's just not a thing, right? Let some of us retire, go open our coffee shops and our farms because our jobs are obsolete. Like just get this stuff turned on by default so that customers can't mess it up, right? Um, so I think that's you know an important thing. And I, I implore our industry colleagues to really be thinking about this. That is gospel. Um, oh my goodness. That is, I, I couldn't have said it better. Sane defaults, sane defaults. Like it, it it's literally life changing, right? I, I couldn't have said it better. Um, okay, so uh, so going on from from that, we were talking about sane defaults. Like so, kind of like what are some of the other pieces that we we need to think about here? Um, well, let's keep it with with Sarah. You've spoken so much truth so far. Let's 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 hear some more from you. Yeah. I mean, you know, Aton touched a little bit on wanting to protect the infrastructure, right? And I think we kind of need to also rethink how we think about protecting these identities, right? Um, I think it was John Lambert at Microsoft that had said, you know, 
uh, defenders are going to think in terms of lists, whereas attackers think in terms of graphs. And I think that's a really great visualization for just, just being able to visualize, like, how should we be thinking about protecting these types of entities, right? And when you think about users, like a user with admin privileges, what is the graph of all the touch that they, stuff that they can go touch now, right? Like, oh, I'm an admin and the tenant, I can now go change federation relationships, or I can now go rotate credentials on this one identity, or I can change my policies now just let everything in, right? Instead of blocking based on certain um, attributes or risk or whatnot. So I think, you know, kind of pivoting more towards not just the individual users, but what is that user's blast radius and what are they going to be able to touch specifically on the identity infrastructure? Because if your identity infrastructure gets compromised, right? Like, you know, Aiton and I think a lot about a specific user being compromised, but the entire tenant can also be compromised, right? If you have one of those users, that's an admin. So kind of as an industry thinking more about how do we protect the identity infrastructure, you know, I think Gartner is now having this push and we've seen a lot of different companies in this industry, which I think is great, starting to pivot towards, you know, detecting risk, not just on the individual identity, but on the identity infrastructure itself. Um, and Aiton and I have seen attacks, right, where they have really leveraged the fact that identities can change settings or configurations in a tenant to allow it to be further compromised, right? And we know that tenants collaborate. So if you have one tenant compromised, it can also lead to other tenants being compromised. So this is a really, really critical issue that, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful with some more attention um, from Gartner, from our competitors and our collaborators in the industry that we'll be able to make some progress on because it's a huge uh, surface area today that we are increasingly seeing attackers exploit. What, what was actually interesting about that is uh, you, you mentioned your competitors as well. Um, one of the biggest challenges I see uh, is in order for us to get to a place where we have kind of a standard for these things, which is industry-wide rather than vendor-wide, uh, it's going to take vendors, uh, HashiCorp, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, all of us, um, to kind of align ourselves, right? Um, the problem is um, everyone's fighting for market share, right? So people are always going to do things which are proprietary to their platform and say, hey, come over to us because if you're on our platform, you can do these things here and so on and so forth, right? Um, so I see that as one of the biggest challenges. Um, and it's, I mean, it's understandable. If, if, if I were any of the, any of the big three, I, I would do the same thing as well, right? Um, so those are the the parameters that we as an industry have to kind of operate within when we're, we're thinking of ideas and we're trying to think how do we extend identity across uh, different platforms and different clouds, right? Um, so with that in mind, what comes next? How do, how do we figure out what's next and how do we do it so that it's bigger than just ourselves, right? How do we, and I don't expect you to have the answers for this, but what, what's, what is a good idea in your mind kind of uh, look like uh, at this point so we can at least dream and kind of bring ourselves back down to reality and figure out where reality actually is rather than kind of assuming that reality is lower, actually it could be a bit higher. Like, uh, let's go to ATA. Partnerships. I mean, I, it takes partnership, right? It, that sounds like a cliche, but like there's partnerships between us and our customers, right? Customers rarely use a single vendor for their entire infrastructure, right? And that creates an imperative on the vendors to work together to make sure that they can address end-to-end -end customer scenarios. It's also in the interest of the vendors, right, to do these sorts of things. 
it's in the interest of the industry that we all work together. So I think there's a few areas that we can do it. First of all, with existing customers who have, let's just take the example of Microsoft and HashiCorp, right? Making sure that we've addressed their intent scenarios. So Rob, I'm probably going to be calling you after this to, to have a follow-up conversation about that. There's also the aspect of what we can do in the area of open standards. So our, we have a, a team in Microsoft, several teams in the identity team. We have uh, Pam Dingle leads our uh, standards team that has done a lot of work around FIDO 2.0, uh, other, you know, other initiatives that have sought to really create common lexicon, common frameworks across the industry to help create a, a common baseline. And I think we do, to your point, Rob, I think we do need to pursue that, that, that effort uh, in the industry as well. With competitors, I think we have to be responsible. I think the way you see Microsoft's marketing is different than you, you see marketing from our competitors. We don't do attack marketing. And the reason is, is because we are, how do I put this? We're a platform company who is constantly under attack and protecting customers from attacks. We don't have the luxury to just talk about, we don't have the luxury of taking pot shots at our competitors because we're on 24 seven, protecting some of the most critical agencies and customers in the, in the world. And as a result of that, we have to be deliberate, methodical, and balanced in our approach towards the way we approach security. That hopefully helps earn customer trust, earns trust from our customers, and helps us demonstrate the leadership that, frankly, we need to demonstrate in, in the industry to, to make real progress here. One last thing, and I want to pass it over to Sarah, is I think a key next step. Sarah mentioned a really critical thing around infrastructure security. The gap that I highlighted earlier has to do with the fact that we've seen strong efforts around user security in terms of customer adoption, strong efforts around MFA adoption, you know, uh, device management, uh, conditional, you know, adaptive authentication, all these sorts of things, even FIDO to, to, to some degree. We haven't seen the equivalent investment on the side of workload identity security to get to the place where we, because we all know that, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. To get to the place where we can achieve infrastructure security, identity infrastructure security, we need to see stronger investment from customer side on uh, workload identity security so that you have more parity. Once you start, and to get to that, we need to work together. We as the, as the vendors need to work together to educate and advocate and, and help customers get there, facilitate you know, easier, easier customer adoption. Sarah? Yeah, definitely agree, Eitan, on having more investment on the workload identity side. I think that is so critical, right? And unfortunately, as we continue to see more attacks uh, that abuse workload identities, I think there's only going to be more attention on it. Um, you know, I do want to add a little bit on the, the question of competition and collaboration, right? I actually see these as super complementary. I love competition. I think it makes all of us in the industry build more innovative solutions that are going to better protect our customers. And collaboration can actually help us more effectively compete, right? You know, today we have all these different companies across the industry that have little pieces of information about risk, information about networks that might be fishy, information about malware, what have you. But if we actually come together as an industry and bring all this data to bear when we're making decisions about whether or not to, you know, kick a user out of the organization or remediate someone's password, 
we'll be able to make much more informed decisions that will better protect our customers. And then on top of that, compete better, right? Because we'll be able to innovate with new types of detections or new type of um, prevention mechanisms. I think one really interesting component, you know, I uh, part of what I own on our team is I own our API story and our APIs are open, right? Like any customer can go to Microsoft Graph if they have our product and query the APIs, which also means that our competitors can use these APIs. You know, I've been asked a lot by folks externally, like, hey, doesn't that concern you? They're your competitors. They'll be pulling the risk information from Microsoft. And it does not concern me at all, right? Because they're still a Microsoft customer and we want to protect them the best way that they can. And that might be that this third-party tool has to pull them in. So I'm actually super proud of the fact that we do have, uh, I won't name drop them here, but if you do a quick Bing or Google search, you'll find them. A lot of our competitors are using our APIs. And I think that really does speak to, you know, there is this desire for collaboration. Like I think somewhere on the back of all of our minds, we recognize that we can better protect our customers if we pull all of our resources together. And so, you know, I kind of think, in terms of next steps, like I really hope that as an industry kind of led by some of the standards work we're doing and also just in general, kind of the spirit of collaboration allows us really to take down some of these barriers and do what we need to do to protect our customers. That was very, very well put. Very, very well put. Okay. So we've, we've kind of reached the hour mark now or there and abouts. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, it's, this is the kind of conversation that we could speak for free four hours easily and then come back again tomorrow and continue and so on and so forth. It's um, th- These are very serious problems that we're, that we're talking about, very big problems to solve. I don't believe they can be solved by one individual or one uh, organization. It has to be as an industry. And I'm, I'm so blessed that we've had the opportunity to sit down with you both and you know, speak as me as someone who probably uses Azure more than any other cloud provider out there. And I'm always thinking about these problems from HashiCorp's perspective. And a lot of uh, my customers are using Azure as well. Being able to kind of think about what that end-to-end workflow looks like for the customer. Okay, they want to do stuff in Azure. They want to use Vault, for example. They want to use Boundary or something like that. How do we seamlessly integrate these things? I spend a lot of time thinking about these things here. Um, Lucky for us, uh, we've uh, enjoyed a good partnership uh, with Microsoft uh, for many years. And uh, long may that continue. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, from this point of view, we're, we're always keen to get vendors on and kind of have these conversations uh, with them, especially with the type of deep expertise that you both have brought to the table uh, today. Uh, so I want to say uh, from us to you, thank you both so much for your time, for schooling us and engaging us in in these conversations here. And um, we will definitely have to speak offline and maybe potentially bring you back again to kind of take the conversation a bit further. Uh, But thank you so much. And thank you to our lovely listeners. uh, And this has been our landmark episode 10. Thank you so much. (laughs) Take care. You've been listening to Keeping It Secure with your host, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil. Be sure to join us next time. 